Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. One of the things we notice through reading through Philippians is the number of times he mentions that word rejoice. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1, you note in uh, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you, with all, uh, for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Even though you don't have rejoice mentioned every single instance, I want to note verse, verses 25 and 26 as well. Being confident in this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. There are other passages that we could look at, and plenty, of course, uh, that have to do with development, and that's really what we want to look at this morning. A question from that passage that we read in chapter 2 would be, what does this mean, this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? And I think a lot of this comes down to a matter of development. I think what we'll see as we move through this passage and look through what Paul is saying, that there is an aspect here where we are in progress, we are works in progress, we're working toward a specific goal. But then part of this question is, how do I have contentment and assurance and security while I am working toward that goal? And what do I need to do to make sure that I have that joy within myself and understanding that, that just because I'm not there yet, that doesn't mean that I'm a failure. That doesn't mean that I'm useless. It doesn't mean that I'm uh, without value. So, but I, I think, again, a big core of that is the aspects of working out our own salvation. And I think together we'll see this. In the first few verses, as you have always obeyed, Paul, Paul talks about here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, he has a confidence in their continued faithfulness. Paul has a consistent confidence, actually, with his fellow Christians. And when you look at his letters about this and his attitude toward his fellow Christians, 
it really kind of makes me pause and think about, well, is that the attitude that I'm having? Is that the thought that I'm having toward my fellow Christians? Back in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, take a step back there, and I want us to note a couple of things. Those of you who have been part of the studies that we've had on 1 Corinthians, I mean, we've, we've talked about this aspect. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 4, similar statements that we just read with Philippians, but I want us to note the emphasis and what actions Paul is talking about and who is doing those actions. So, and we'll compare and contrast here. 1 Corinthians 4, I thank my God always, Paul writes, concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A lot of the same terminology as in the Philippian letter. But notice the contrast here is, Paul is not talking here at all about what the brethren in Corinth are doing. He's not talking about, you know, I, I trust you know, in the good things I see you doing and things like that. Why? Well, you know, we read through First and Second Corinthians, we notice there's a big old mess there. There's a bunch of problems that the Corinthian brethren are being called upon by Paul to work through. Adultery and uh, problems within the church, division, disunity, uh, uh, party, party mindsets and things such as that. And so what he is talking about here is not what the Corinthian brethren are doing, but what God has done in them. And that, that challenges me because... Often when we look at others, we want to look at them from a standpoint of like, okay, I can see what they're doing. I can see what they're not doing. And we need to be willing to judge and discern and hold each other accountable. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think we need to recognize that Paul had this mindset that, you know what? God's going to finish this thing that he started in you. God's going to finish the thing that he began for you. And for the Corinthian brethren, he's, he's encouraging and saying, look at what God did for you. Look at the foundation that you have in Him. You have this foundation in His grace, the testimony of Christ confirmed to you. And He's saying, who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless. Paul, speaking to Corinth, is saying, you can be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. Because there are a ton of things that we, you know, I, I need to continually work on and improve on. And so it kind of brings a particular perspective to what he's saying. Uh, back in Philippians 2 and verse 12, as you have always obeyed, Paul says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So his expectation of their faithfulness in his absence as well. Do we sometimes feel like there are people in our lives that maybe wouldn't do as well if we weren't in their lives? Maybe we're kind of like pulling them along a little bit. And, you know, the reality is that that's, that's, that's very true. But Paul has a faithfulness to recognize that, that you're going to continue this in my absence. I know that. I have no doubt. There's a confidence in the way that Paul is talking to his brethren here. A uh, cursory glance again at Corinth is that many problems can serve us when Paul is away. When we get to 2 Corinthians, it seems like a group has risen up that is criticizing Paul. And there's an issue there. 
And, and that all came up while Paul is away. But here he's saying, you know, even in my absence, much more in my absence, he's saying, work out your own salvation. Paul is completely invested in the success of the brethren at Philippi. And he communicates this with care and love. Further, we see when he really encourages them to work out our own salvation. I think about that and I think about what Paul said in Acts 24, 14. He is defending himself essentially before uh, the Jews and he's saying, this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. The way which they call uh, a sect. Salvation, we need to recognize, is part of the way. That the way that God has established, the way that God has intended for us to go, Paul worked out his own salvation, didn't he? In fact, he goes so far to say to the brethren in Galatia that I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. You know, I, I stay in Damascus. And so there's an instance where Paul, is, he's not expecting the brethren at Philippi to do something that he wouldn't do. He's not saying, well, you ought to do it this way because I just think that's the best way to do it. No, he's saying, work out your own salvation. And in the back, you recognize with the story of Paul and what happened there. He worked out his own salvation as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So what, what this really kind of surrounds upon and what we need to recognize is working out our own salvation, number one, is not about uh, making up our own salvation system. Some people might look at this verse and say, well, I'll work out my own way of salvation. Sure, you know, that's what Paul is saying. Work out your own salvation. And so maybe one person says, well, I think salvation looks like this. And another person says, well, I think salvation looks like this. And that's where we get chaos, right? One church says this is the way to salvation. One church says this is the other way to salvation. But that's not what Paul did. And that's not what he's encouraging the brethren at Philippi to do. He's encouraging them to recognize and emulate the true way of salvation given by God through his son and communicated through his apostles. And what this centers on is the fact that I need, as a Christian, a willingness to look without bias at my own development. And I say without bias, and that is a challenge, because we have quite the bias, especially when we're looking at ourselves. And it's easy for us to excuse ourselves. It's easy for us to not, not really see the truth of certain situations. And again, these are things that I'm saying to myself just as much as anybody in here. Look without bias at my own development. Work out my own salvation. Part of rejoicing in the salvation of God is recognizing how far off we were when we came to Him. 2 Corinthians 4, please. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think about this, and one thing for us to think of with this passage and other passage where we see 
the fault of the world and the wickedness of the world. I, I saw on Facebook a fellow mentioned, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine mentioned with verse uh, 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. He basically said, let's, let's don't ever read that verse in a haughty way. Let's not read that verse as if we're you know, looking down our nose at the rest of the world. It's veiled to those who are perishing. They can't see anything. And that's, that's the worst attitude we can have. This is a sad situation, the wickedness of the world, the darkness of the world. And we need to recognize that. And we need to see the light that God has commanded to shine out of the darkness. I connect that back to our main passage, back in Philippians 2, where he talks about the sense of us shining as lights in the world. More on that in just a moment. But I, you know, this is just, to me, this is the thought that I have about this concept of working out our own salvation. I think about myself being in a dark forest. Maybe all I have is a flashlight or some sort of lantern or something. And uh, I need to get out of that dark forest. I'm walking my way out of that dark forest. God's given me a light to show the way. And so I need to work out my own salvation in the sense that I need to be ultimately saved. I need to get out of that dark forest. Uh, and this is consistent with the biblical language. Isaiah 42, 16, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. That's what God does for us. He opens up that light so that we can know the way, so that we can continue to work out these things. It's not just the evil of recognizing the darkness and the wickedness of the world. It's recognizing that this glory, that God is leading His faithful out of that darkness. And so it is a continued aspect of these things. Again, more about the light in just a moment. But how we realize our salvation is just as important. We don't work out our own salvation with pride and haughtiness. We don't work out our own salvation with, you know, looking down at others and say, well, I'm doing better than him or I'm doing better than that. And we know that. But in Romans 12 and verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I like the translations as well that say it's spiritual service or spiritual worship. This salvation must be worked out with fear and trembling. We have to take it seriously. When we come out of the darkness into the light of Jesus, we're using that light to find our way because He's guiding us. Notice in Galatians 1 and verse 4, I'm talking about Jesus, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So breaking this down, Jesus gave Himself so that we can be delivered from this time and this world. Thus, we give ourselves completely to Him in order to work out our salvation. And note again, this is not earning our salvation. This is not uh, buying our way through that dark forest. This is clinging to that light that God has given us and knowing that that's, that's the only way I'm going to get out of this, is holding to Him. And so from that point, we work out our own salvation. We're working through these things, not just choosing our way, not just choosing our salvation, but recognizing that this is the way we go here. And the purpose that you may become blameless. 
And now I want us to note as well, back in verse 13 of Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's interesting. I really don't have very much on that. And uh, Evan was mentioning earlier, he's going to be covering a lot of that thought. So this uh, worked out very providentially. So uh, grateful for that. But, uh, but at the same time, we realize it is God indeed doing this. And that's, that's where we come back to that light that he's given me. I didn't do anything to earn that. That's not an earning aspect of this. But he goes on to do all things without complaining and disputing. Notice that all things means all things. You know, that's really what it is. It's all-inclusive. Paul knows that working on their salvation requires that they resist the elements that will get in the way of their growth, that will inhibit their growth. When we complain and argue, when we uh, fuss about things that really uh, maybe we need to be more careful about or cautious about, uh, when we bring up rather minor things as if they're huge aspects of the kingdom, that holds us back from working forward. The complaining, arguing, the sense of, of just drudging through our life in the kingdom that's going to keep us from proper development. Paul knows that, and that's what he's emphasizing to the brethren in Philippi. But note when he says, become blameless. This is a responsibility to develop and to grow. And so we focus our course on a daily basis. Note, note here too, becoming blameless. A lot of translations have it that way. That you may be blameless, I think old King James says. We don't start out perfect, right? We are works in progress. And so our goal, part of our goal, should be to be or become blameless. Uh, again, back in Philippians 1 and verse 6, he's, Paul was confident that he says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It didn't mean they were already there. They needed to be complete in Him. And just as we need to. How can we have Paul's mindset toward his fellow Christians? I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. Being confident in each other and trusting in each other. And I don't have all the answers of how to establish that, but I do know that all those answers lie within the Scriptures. Christ's light gives us a particular way to live. It's going to be different from the world. Again, 1 John 1 and verse 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. Well, the opposite here, going back to our uh, example or our, our thought earlier, if I'm in the middle of that dark forest and I just put that lantern down and say, you know, really, I don't need this. I can see well enough on my own. You know, I'm going to be in that forest forever, aren't I? I'm going to be in that, that darkness forever. Yet, you know, we don't rise from the baptismal waters with all knowledge needed in order to resist temptation and sin. And so becoming blameless means we see the standard to move forward. We, we see the standard. We see where we need to be. We need to recognize that, first of all. If I don't recognize that standard of blamelessness, then I I'm not really going to care to move, move toward it. But we also need to remain satisfied and content with where we currently are. And I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not talking about laziness. I'm talking about, I know I'm not there yet, but I'm working toward it. And, and, and this is the, the trap that we get into. Uh, Colossians 2 and verse 8 Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the, to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. 
For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Do we ever think about the fact that the Judaizing teachers sometimes would talk about the, the, the fact that there's no resurrection that's happened yet, the fact that Jesus has not yet come back? That they would use that as a way to try to convince Christians to buy in to what they were trying to push? You see, sometimes we get dissatisfied with where we are. And because of that, we end up looking at things or going after things that are all about deceit, that are cheating us, that are pulling us out of where we need to be. And all we need is Christ. I mean, look at that verse. All we need is Him. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in Him. Notice you are complete in Him. That needs to be our thought, brethren. We are deceived when we think that we are unable to attain to the standards of our head. Some people have a sense that, well, you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to do everything right. You're never going to do everything properly. And so why try? On the other hand, we are hopeless. You know, we, we think we're hopeless if we've not already attained. We're not already there. Well, we're being deceived in the same point, you know. We're not worthless. And the reality is we are going to make mistakes. And we're going to mess up. And we're going to falter. But we have a God of grace. Someone says, well, what about verse 15 here? Without fault. Without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I think that's part of the context we need to consider. We're without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, You could say, in a sense, this is the paganism of the Gentiles and the idolatry of the Jews in the first century. Very much the same thing when it comes down to spiritual sin. But it's a sense of committing to that way of life. I think that sense of being without fault, we'll get there if we commit ourselves to this way. You know, we, we can worry about the world, we can be concerned about the world, but you know, you look at what Jesus said about uh, the purpose of him actually using Paul. In Acts 26, 18, uh, again, Paul is quoting this, but to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by what? By faith in me. They're sanctified by faith in me. When I accept God's way, when I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, the end result is I will divide myself from the wickedness of the world. That is the natural consequence of things. Now, I may have worldly friends and people out there in the world that I can talk to and converse with and have good-natured relationship with, and there's not a thing wrong with that. But we also recognize that the closer we get to God, some of those worldly friends just plain aren't going to want to be around us. And maybe they'll leave. Maybe they'll stop associating with us. That's the nature of things. And that's not something that's a problem. Sanctified or set apart by faith in Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. We work toward the fullness of being Uh, without fault and blameless ultimately. Finally, as we close our thoughts today, we want to think about holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. And that's really holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ 
and that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The positivity of Paul is just amazing here. And I'm, talk, I'm not talking about just positivity in spite of problems. It's, it's a sense of recognizing the good that's there, the possibilities that are there. And so from that standpoint, holding fast the word of life, hold to the foundations. Hold to where we came from. Paul is, while stressing the need to develop and grow in the kingdom, he impresses upon them the need to hold closely to the word, which is the true source of life. There's no other place we're going to get that. And from this central point of God's revealed word stems all proper behavior and understanding in the kingdom. This is where we get it. Nowhere else. God shows us how to live through his scriptures. One other thing we learn from all this passage, really, you know, you look at the verse uh, 17 and 18. I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. I'm challenged by that. Because we don't always feel confident in the success of our brethren. Even when we're not directly working with them, sometimes especially when we're not not directly working with them, we can be rather critical. Part of this trust, part of this trust of rejoicing in others, rejoicing in each other, really seems to revolve around allowing for failure in others, allowing for the possibility of that trust to be broken, allowing for that risk for that trust to be broken. While we must work to inoculate the brethren and make sure that we are cleared and uh, safe against threats, we also have to consider our, our own weakness and our own frailties, and we need to work to maintain that faithfulness and trust. We need to seek God's light and use it to discern. Now, being a light really means recognizing the darkness, and I, th- I believe that what he's talking about shining as lights in the world, we are not lights to ourselves, are we? We reflect the true, clear light of God. We are like the moon to God's sun. We are reflecting God's truth to others. That's the nature of things in terms of the kingdom. Paul writes in Romans 13, 12, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I love that imagery because it's something that keeps us safe but at the same time, it guides us and illuminates and shows the way. We need to develop in the ways that God gives, not the ways that we come up with. Uh, recognizing that that entrance into the everlasting kingdom, you know, Peter talked about that. If you do these things and develop in these ways, you'll be given an entrance to the everlasting kingdom. So that's what we're looking for. That's what we're striving toward. And so I just I leave it with you this morning and ask you, you know, have you done that? Are you a part of the kingdom? Are you living in that way? If you haven't even begun that, then you have not even begun to live by the words of Jesus. I cannot say that Jesus is the Son of God and at the same time say I'm not going to respond to his invitation. He's inviting you this morning to become a part of his great spiritual kingdom that will be with God forever in the end. And so if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to make that decision this morning to to turn from your ways and serve him. If you are a Christian and need the prayers of the brethren or need to admit something publicly, we would love to help you with that.
Whatever you need, so please come and obey the gospel while we stand and sing.